This is a Federal News Network podcast. For people who worked through the pandemic, they often complain half in jest about suffering from Zoom fatigue. But the fact is, having the right digital technologies in place ensured continuity for the federal government, no less than in many industries. To figure out what industry and government learned from all of this, Microsoft commissioned a study by a group called the Economist Intelligence Unit. Here with highlights. Microsoft's Regulated Industries President, Tony Towns-Whitley. Tony, always good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. And the Economist Intelligence Unit Managing Editor, Michael Gold. Mr. Gold, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Ms. Towns-Whitley, tell us what Microsoft was trying to discover with this study, first of all. Yeah, good question, Tom. First, really trying to validate our own experiences over the last 16 months, where we had to examine our own assumptions about the speed, the velocity of digital transformation, the focus of government during a remote everything world. And so we wanted to at least get data to underlie and challenge our own experiences to see if what we had lived through with our customers was, in fact, how they described the experience and what they prioritized. We were really trying to understand their pain points. We were really trying to understand how they procured, what they focused on across the government, what might be the lasting impact as we go into what everyone is trying to characterize as the new normal post-pandemic. So in many ways, that could benefit Microsoft by being able to tailor future products and consultative offerings, but it could also help help the customers to understand their own situation somewhat better than perhaps I think we're all still kind of figuring this out. Absolutely. Because so much about technology is also how you think about technology. It's the mindset of how quickly you want to adopt what you want to build, how you understand it as a means to an end, generally a mission, as you mentioned up front, the resiliency of your own mission, agency mission. And so it's not just what they procured and how they engaged, but what what's the shift in mindset, if any, Okay, good. And from the Economist Intelligence Unit, Michael Gold, tell us how you went about the research. We conducted a survey of 800 executives and public sector officials across 15 countries around the world. And eight industries were represented in that survey sample, including 100 from government public sector And we asked a number of questions in which we tried to assess the respondents' use of technology during the pandemic in their organizations, as well as how priorities have shifted, you know, from pre-pandemic norms into sort of the world that we're facing now. All right. And so, Tony, I want to ask you then, we all know that you need these digital tools and everyone kind of intuitively understands that 20 years ago, none of this would have been possible. Nobody could possibly spend, you know, three hours a day on conference calls where you can't see everyone. So uh, I should say teams in honor of Microsoft here and not just (laughs) Zoom. But going deeper, what do you think are some of the more important learnings that may not be so obvious? Yeah. Let, Let me start with a few basics. Quite frankly, the correlation between those agencies that had an advantage in navigating sort of the upheavals of the pandemic were those agencies that had made some investments already and were already on a transformation journey. That may seem obvious, but as you look at the VA that's been on this journey for five years, not just with Microsoft, but others, you could see it and how quickly they were able to deploy sort of AI chatbots and give veterans 24-7 access to COVID-19 testing and scheduling and how to schedule a telehealth visit, how to refill your prescription. They then started to use a full range of, I would say, sort of um, what we'll call app development, low-code app development, using cloud technologies to help their agency get kind of real-time information from bed utilization through the heat of the pandemic to really kind of almost monitoring and triaging COVID-19. 
chain. So you'll see that, you'll see it in SBA, how they leveraged all kinds of security capabilities to kind of make sure that they were able to operate with the most critical needs of distributing pandemic-related funding, but keeping it secure and remote. They were already on part of that path. So that's the you know, first obvious finding. Another would be this real focus on the employee engagement. So when we did the research, we found that 72% of our respondents reported not only an acceleration in the pace of transformation, but that they had focused on the employee engagement. So one perfect example on that would be the commercial virtual remote environment that was done by the Pentagon, which was a platform with Microsoft Teams, a collaboration platform and other products. And such a focus on the Pentagon designing and deploying this in just a month. Now that would have been a year, 18 months, two years in a prior world. In a month, they were able to stand up CVR, what we call CVR, this commercial virtual remote environment. They had to. It was a requirement. The last thing I'll just mention in terms of maybe things that might not be as obvious, skill building, how important it is to get beyond devices to digital skilling and the the really building out the capability and the competency of the employees in the government agencies on how to use. Many of them had technology they had already purchased and maybe even deployed, but knowing how to use it and knowing how to, quite frankly, adapt it and morph it to the situation at hand, I think that you're going to see that going forward. We're speaking with Tony Towns-Whitley, president of Regulated Industries at Microsoft, and Michael Gold, the managing editor of the Economist Intelligence Unit. And, Michael, the whole range of learnings that happened in the public sector based on looking across private and public, would you say that government is pretty good at this relative to the private sector? Well, government respondents definitely showed some, you know, sort of exceptional results compared with some of our private sector survey respondents. So when we're looking across the entire um, survey pool, we're seeing that government respondents are much more likely than the average of the sectors to say that securing budget for digital transformation has been easier since the start of the pandemic which is probably not particularly surprising when you think about government in and of itself. But given how every sector needed to sort of move into a digital space, it is perhaps a little bit surprising that government was, you know, above and beyond other sectors when it said that it was able to secure budget more easily for digital transformation. Also, on the thread that Tony was raising about skill building, they're more likely than other sectors, actually, than the private sector to engage in skill building initiatives with universities and with educational institutions. So that really does point to the fact that they see the need for, you know, a talented pipeline of individuals who can engage with these digital skills that they're trying to instill in their departments and build that pipeline for that talent workforce going forward. And Tony, I wanted to follow up on that point of the employee experience and employee engagement. I think of maybe one of the greatest pieces of mechanical technology ever developed, and that was the ball turret gun in the bottom of an airplane in World War II, but a perfectly dreadful thing that you had to contort a person to fit into. And if they were alive when they came out of it or not frozen to death, well, then you got the mission done. You're looking at this in an entirely different way, is to adapt the technology to get the most from people in an intuitive way. And that's a pretty profound difference from the way technology has often been deployed. It's really about what you build, too. So if you're building towards sort of human-centered design for technology, you're saying it isn't about the device being remote. It's about the human being remote. It isn't about the device connecting the dots. It's about allowing the human experience, the engagement with the technology to meet, as you said, the natural organic flow 
of how productivity occurs. And that's what I think is one of the shifts and people had to get there. They had to get there in a remote everything world. And now they're starting to experience it. In fact, as we look forward, and uh, Tom, no, we probably don't have much more time with you, but as we look forward, I really think you're going to see sort of three areas that will continue to provide a bit of a beacon on how the government will continue to acquire, deploy, and, and I think innovate on their own in the tech space. One will be around people, the skilling and this workforce development and digital skilling. It's not going away. It will be part of a standard capability set, I think, for government over time. And wonderful organizations are working with us on trying to get that embedded. Policy. You know, during this pandemic, we had to look at some policies like trusted Internet certificates, policies that are 20, 30 years old that we needed to think that were actually standing in the way of the adoption of the technology needed to work in this environment. So I think there'll be a, a harder look at both how you procure those kinds of policies, which we've talked about before, Tom, but but all forms of sort of outdated policies that stand in the way of technology. Flip side of that is there'll be the ethics of the and where I'm most excited about the use of the tech has been this focus on data. You know, data as currency, data as budget. This idea that government really started to lean on our data and AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and started to do that even more than some other sectors during this time. We've got some great examples of how they use that data and artificial intelligence, but we also have in complement uh, many agencies that also started to check themselves to make sure they had ethics and ethical frameworks in place to understand the implications of using artificial intelligence and machine learning in their environment. So you're going to see that going forward. I don't think we're going to go backwards on the use of data to help drive mission prediction as well as decision making. And in many ways, then, this is all too important to leave solely to the pure technologists in the organization. You really need the leadership and the planners and the human designers to be part of what's going forward. And I guess the other challenge now for agencies is to take a good look back 15 months and really analyze what they did, because that could really drive how they think about future technology investment so that they're not caught behind if they were one of those that was caught behind the next time. Yeah, Tom, we've talked about it before, this construct of tech intensity, which is basically how do you acquire technology that's available quickly and adeptly? How do you build your own skills? And how do you do that and create sort of an environment of trust for your employees and even for the citizens that are gaining the services that you're providing? So I think you're going to see some tech intensity. We're already on that glide path that's going to stay. Michael, anything final that people should know? I think one of the interesting threads, and, you know, Tony and you were touching upon this, was just around kind of that sort of mass shift to remote work. And in one area, you can actually see that the government maybe went even further than some of the other private sector respondents in the sense that they had previously rated themselves as less prepared for that going into the pandemic, less prepared for remote work and collaboration than the private sector, but that their investment in remote work and collaboration tools was actually higher during the pandemic than it was for our private sector respondents. So you can see that they were really playing a game of catch up, but that they really did kind of make that effort to go above and beyond where they really needed to. Um, and they saw that need to do it. And they tried to meet that moment pretty well. All right. So everybody be cautious about stuffing all your employees back into the office now at this point. Michael Gold is managing editor of the Economist Intelligence Unit. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. And Tony Towns Whitley, president of Regulated Industries at Microsoft. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. 
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community, so it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt. Uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define 
how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who has, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. 
I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.